Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thank you so much, Becky. It's good to see everybody. Good morning. My name is Joshua, and uh, we've been doing a series on uh, Genesis. And uh, really, the meaning of the word Genesis is origins. And that's really what uh, Genesis uh, deals with, is the origins of things. And, uh, and we've been kind of looking at uh, the issue of the origins of creation. Uh, we've been looking at the issues of the origin of marriage. Um, we've been looking at the issue of the origin of work and rest, ultimately uh, original sin. And so... Uh, if er- whoever's on the board could just put up my title slide, that'd be good. I'm having more issues here, so it's my bad. Um, and now we're looking at the origins of the breakdown in the family, really. If you think about it, uh, am I my brother's keeper? Um, you have a repeat in the story of Cain and Abel of Eve's temptation. Uh, the structure of Genesis 4 in a literary way is exactly like the structure of Genesis 3. Remember, Eve, there's this dialogue that she has, right? And then there's this temptation, and then she takes the forbidden fruit after giving in to her desires. And then what happens from there is God comes and arraigns her, indicts her, uh, takes, brings her to trial, asks her all these questions, she answers the questions. Same thing in Genesis 4. You got you got a dialogue. Uh, Cain has a dialogue there. And then there's like this moment of kind of dealing with motion and desire and everything like that. And then he, and then he kills his brother. Then God comes up and says, where, where are you at? What have you done? This is what's going on. And so you, you almost kind of go, wow, it's like the same thing except a different chapter. Like that is so boring, you know. <laughs> Somebody told me, just pre I'm really tired today, so you got to keep me awake when you're preaching. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but we're going to say the same thing we did last week, you know. 
But the differences really, really point out uh, that it's not the same. Sin is getting worse. Eve takes a forbidden piece of fruit and she eats it. Cain kills his brother, right? Eve has to be talked into sin by Satan. I mean, Satan really has to do a good job. He disguises himself as a beautiful serpent. He comes, he does this big policy, this big argument. And she literally, she, she almost holds him back as long as she can before she gives in to the sin. She has to be talked into sin. Cain can't be talked out of sin. God shows up. God himself shows up to Cain and says, Cain, don't do this thing. Let me talk you out of it. And Cain can't be talked out of it. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you, you can't be talked out of the things that destroy your life, right? That's sinful nature. You can't be talked out of it. Uh, Adam and Eve show a little bit of shame. They were full of shame. They cover themselves. They hide behind bushes. They, they're, kind of, they're kind of dealing with, oh, my gosh, I messed up. Cain's like, Cain gets caught, and he's like, so? Am I my brother's keeper? You know what I mean? Eve hides the sin. Adam and Eve hide the sin. Cain lies about the sin. The point is, is that if we had any hope that the children of Adam and Eve would somehow uh, fix what the parents have done, as all parents know, it didn't happen. Things got worse. And really, the sadness of, 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 of the story of Cain killing Abel is that a, a new element in what's so important and vital to us has been broken. And what's been broken is not only our relationship with God, but our relationship to community, our relationship to family. This is the origin of a dysfunctional family. And... When I think about my own life and when I look out into this world and, and when, I, when I see what I see on TV or I see what I, what I see in people or as I talk as a pastor, I know that no matter who you are this morning, whether you agree with our dogma or doctrine or not, I know that you and I, we share something as human beings. We have two basic fundamental needs that we are starving for. And what we are starving for is we are starving for an experience in the reality of God and his love. You, you need God, so you're looking for God in everywhere. You're trying to get filled up with something transcendent and eternal and meaningful and everlasting. This is the human problem. We are, we are so needy of the reality of God. But the second thing we need is we need the reality of human love with each other. Connection to community, marriage, family, uh, community, society, neighborhood, village, Jesus said the ultimate expression of being a human being is to love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and that's what we're missing, isn't it, in the world? And you could look at Eve's temptation, and you can see that in Genesis 3, she loses, Adam and Eve lose the worship of God. But here now in chapter 4, the, the, the connection and the, and the family and the, and, the, and the connection and the love for neighbor is lost through murder. This is the manifestation and the reality of evil and sin, disconnected from God and worship, disconnected from each other in community. 
And when you go to churches in our country and you walk in and however big or small sanctuary, what you find is a lack of preaching about the glory and the beauty and the wonder of God, an inspiring God, a God that's worthy of creator and holy and sovereign and, and, and a God that's inspiring, that when you hear about him, you want to know him. Our churches are lacking this God that created the heavens and the earth. But it, when you go out into culture, you're missing the connection with people. We're individualistic. We're separated. We got emotional, physical, spiritual fences up between us. We're so individualistic and consumer-oriented. And that real transparent relationship is impossible. Genesis 4 is the progression of this story. But the good news, everybody say good news. The good news is is that Genesis 4 tells us that it is possible, even east of Eden, it is possible to be connected, reconnected to this God of love. And that it's possible to be reconnected to human relationships and to love neighbor as ourselves. That it's possible to worship God and to experience him. And it's possible to connect to family, to to have brothers and sisters, to, to have neighborhood and village and community. Genesis 4 tells us uh, before the New Testament and even before Christ, in anticipation of Jesus, it tells us how we might be reconciled to God and the love of neighbor, even as we live east of Eden. Ultimately, Genesis 4 tells us through the story of Cain two things not to do. So there's two things. You're like, I want, I want to be revived in my relationship with God. I want to experience revival in my church, in my heart, in my family. I want to be ignited with worship again. I want, I want when the topic is God, I want my heart to actually beat. And I want to be able to love and have real relationships of transparency and intimacy. I want my marriage to improve. I want, I want my relationship with my kids to improve. I want my relationship with my pastor to improve. Can I get an amen? And God is telling us, indeed through Moses, he is telling us two things not to do. And one thing to do to restore our love for God and our love for neighbor. And in the story of Cain, we learn the first thing that we are not to do. In fact, we learn in the story of Cain the secret to disconnecting from the love of God and disconnecting from love of human beings. Write this down. You must get rid of a religious spirit. You have to get rid of religion. If you have a religious spirit, today is your day. As Billy Graham says, it's an hour of decision. Bring your religious spirit to the altar. Any form of Pharisaism, legalism in your heart, any form of judgmentalism over other people uh, rooted in your own self-absorption, your self-importance, bring it to the altar today and kill it. Give it to God. Because what you have in the story of Cain and Abel is you have two brothers going to church. That's what this is. 
two brothers going to church. Both looking to worship God. Cain is fundamentally, manifestly a religious man. And Cain has these credentials. Cain has these credentials which give him a sense of self-importance. Number one credential, he's the first human-born baby from a woman. Eve is so impressed by this happening that in verse 1, when, she, when Cain was born, she says, I have gotten a man. Everybody say a man. Now, how many of you mamas, when your boy was born, you looked at him and you said, that's a fully grown man right there. In fact, in no other place in the Bible ever again is a newborn baby referred to as a man. This is the only place. And you want to know why Eve called Cain a man? Because she believed in the veracity of the promise that God gave her in Genesis 3.15 when he said to her, from your offspring will come a man who will bruise and crush the head of the serpent. And every time she looked at Cain, every time she looked at that boy, she was reminded of this promise. And she might have, although it would be speculation to fully go there, but we could speculate that maybe she thought Cain was Jesus. That maybe this was the Savior. But at the very least, no doubt about it, we can say in the presence of God, clear conscience, that she was reminded of the promise and that when she said a man, she believed in the promise that God would deliver her through a Savior. And so here's Cain, whose mom is saying to him, oh, I love you, baby. You are so important. You are so awesome. Do you know that you are a sign of a prophecy of God? Do you know how important you are? You, in fact, you might be, Cain, you might be the savior of the world. You are so important. You are so big. Look at my big boy. Look at my big boy. I grew up like this with my mother, which explains a lot. Uh, (laughs) Here's Cain. Yes. I not only am religious, I am the symbol of religion. Not only is he the firstborn, the older brother, uh, 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 respected by her mother, but he also has the ultimate job in industry. He is a farmer. Now, is there a better job than being a farmer? I dare anybody to say there is. That's how the commercial went. God made a farmer, amen? Amen. You know, that commercial didn't go, God made a shepherd. Nobody cares about a shepherd. Farmers are important. In fact, it was the original job that God gave to Adam to do. It's the original industry, the original business. And here's Cain coming to church. I'm a farmer. I do what Adam did, the first man. I'm a sign of religious importance. And here I am, I'm coming to church and I'm bringing my sacrifice. And how important am I to God? Oh, I am so, God must be really impressed with me. Aren't you glad you come to my church with me? He looks over at Abel. Here's little Abel, my little brother. What is Abel? Abel's a shepherd. Abel's the little brother. In fact, the name Abel literally means breath. It refers to the brevity of life. When Eve named Abel, she literally said, yep, breath, okay, we're done. 
The root of Abel's name is used in the book of Ecclesiastes to refer to the meaningless and the vanity of life, to the insignificance of life. Literally, he was like, yeah, you're pretty much unimportant. Come here, Cain, baby, come here. Two brothers going to church. Cain looks at Abel and says, I'm glad I'm not Abel. Poor guy. Poor little dude. I'm glad I'm not able. He's trying. I give it to him. He's trying. At least he's coming to church. But I'm glad I'm not him. <laughs> and here they come. There's Adam the priest. There has to be an altar there. You can't offer a sacrifice to God without an altar. So we have a church. We have an altar. We have a priest, Adam. And we have Cain and Abel. And they lay down their sacrifices. And Cain's perspective when he comes to church is a religious spirit. Because when he lays down his sacrifice before God, he automatically assumes that God will be grateful. That God will accept him based on his credentials, on his merit, on his works. Abel comes and he knows, he knows he's nothing. He's humbled. He offers his sacrifice. Not for God to be grateful for his sacrifice, but out of gratitude for God's grace of the promise that he overheard his mother Eve talking to Cain about. And he heard this promise about one who would come and crush the serpent. And he knew immediately, it can't be Cain, but he believed. He believed in the promise. And he brings a blood sacrifice and he lays it at the altar not to be accepted by God, but because he realizes that God makes him accepted by grace, by what God provides. God didn't reject Cain's sacrifice because of the nature of the sacrifice. In fact, in Levitical law, he followed it to the T. He fulfilled all the requirements of a sacrifice. The difference was not what was on the outside. The difference was what was in the heart. And what was in the heart of Cain, which we must evict, was a religious spirit, a proud spirit, an arrogant spirit in the presence of God. Jesus talked about Cain and Abel. Jesus talked about Cain and Abel. First, he talked about Cain and Abel in two brothers, one older and one younger. And the younger brother comes to his father, and he takes his inheritance, and he goes off and he squanders money on prostitutes and wild living. He ends up in the pig slop, and he comes to his senses, and he comes to his God, and he says, like Abel said to God in his sacrifice, I am unworthy. I am a sinner. Father covers him in clothes and gives him a ring and some shoes and throws a a celebration and says, my son was dead, but now he's alive. My son was lost, but now he is found. But what did the older brother do? Do you remember the older brother? And the older brother comes to the dad and says, and literally the text says he was angry. The older brother was a cane. And he says to his father, how can you throw this party for this wanton sinner? I've been here all along. I've been following the rules. 
I have the credentials. I've been here all along. You're gonna th- you never threw a party for me. I'm the one who should get a party. I'm the one who should be the center of attention here. Jesus said this parable to the Pharisees who were so upset that he was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Oh, but Jesus wasn't done. Jesus told another parable about two men going to church. One was a publican, a tax collector, and everybody hates tax collectors. Can I get an amen? Surely God's not going to accept a tax collector. My goodness. A Democrat, probably. There's the Republican Pharisee going to church. I know you're uncomfortable. God wants you to be. There's the Pharisee, Republican, tax collector, liberal. Watches MSNBC. Can you believe this? (laughs) Goes to church. Two guys going to church. Cain and Enable. Pharisee goes in there, offers up a prayer to God, beats his breast, and says, God, thank you that I am not like the adulterers of the culture. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the sinners and the extortionists. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. Cain, spirit of Cain, spirit of Cain. The tax collector goes in, says he beats his chest. He can't even, literally, Jesus says, he can't even lift his head. He beats his chest and he says to me, God, be merciful to me. I am, I am, I am a sinner. And Jesus said it was the tax collector who went home justified. And the Republican went home unjustified. Can you believe this gospel? (laughs) Jesus says. Jesus says that the worst kind of sin is not a secular, worldly, obvious sin. The worst kind of most deadly, most destructive sin is the sin of a spirit of religion. It murders and it divides and it gossips and it talks behind people's backs and it makes little molehills in the mountains. Oh, and it claims that it's more important than everybody else and it knows more than everybody else and it's from the devil. God says to Cain, and God is so gracious to Cain. Is God awesome? God refuses to choose between justice and mercy. God keeps coming to Cain with so much grace, and he says in verse 6, look at it in Genesis 4. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? Isn't that what a religious spirit does? It's just so upset. If you do well, will you not be accepted? That is, justified. 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule it. He describes sin as not something that's obvious, but something that's secret, that's, that's deceptive. And he describes sin here as a crouching lion. Now, it turns out I am an expert on crouching lions. And the two things I have told my children about lions when they crouch. They crouch for two reasons. Ultimately, they crouch to not be seen so that their prey at night when they walk by, they will not see the lion at all and then the lion can pounce. Or, number two, not as good of a strategy, but worst case scenario, if the prey should see the lion, the prey will see that the lion is smaller than it really is. So number one, it's not there. Or number two, it's not that big a deal. Now, isn't that what we think when we start talking about religion and a religious spirit? Don't we think it's not that big a deal? We think it's not that big a deal. Or we just don't think it's there in our heart. It's certainly not a part of our church. It couldn't be. Oh, it's there. And it's a big deal. Much bigger than we think. And when it possesses somebody, when a religious spirit takes somebody, its desire is to take ownership of that person. To take over their heart, their mind, their perspective about people and about each other, and about their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it is like a lion to, to completely swallow up. Cain doesn't think he has a problem. He thinks God's got a problem. I don't have a problem. What's happening here, God, is not fair. I should have been accepted. My mama told me I should be accepted. My daddy told me I should be accepted. I am an apprentice of Adam in the, in, 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 in the fields. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Now, the text, especially in Hebrew, but even in English, you, can, you keep saying his brother, his brother, his brother, six times in the next few verses. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, somebody he was supposed to love and take care of, his little baby brother that he was supposed to protect and to raise up and to train into the ways of the Lord, the, the little brother that he was supposed to, to cover, and, and, and his love was supposed to cover a multitude of sins of his little brother, but he was unwilling to cover the sins of his brother with his love. Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and the more he spoke to Abel's brother, the more furious he came. In fact, the very sight of Abel just gnawed at this religious man. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Not my fault. That's, see, that's what religious people do. It's not my fault. It's his fault. Not my fault. They're the ones that keep jacking everything up. Not my fault. What, am I supposed to do everything for everybody around here? Huh? Not my fault. God says, verse 10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You know, facts are stubborn things, aren't they? It's the spirit of religion, superiority over everybody else. It 
sheds blood. Jesus, again, makes reference. Go to Matthew chapter 23 in your Bibles. Have you ever read Matthew 20? You should read Matthew 23 this week. It is so awesome because it records the sermon of Jesus to the Pharisees, and it is stellar. It is great stuff. Talk about Jesus just absolutely obliterating the Pharisees, right? And he gets to a part in this sermon against the Pharisees, and he's looking right at him. He's like, woe to you Pharisees, you snakes. Woe to you Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. And he says here in verse 34, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all of the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel. To the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murder between the sanctuary and the altar. Do you realize that what Jesus is saying in his commentary against the Pharisees is that the origin of all Pharisees is Cain. That Cain is the first of his kind. Cain is the first one that came up with a religious church, a religious church where there was no chance that anybody below their credentials could be made right with God. And who killed Jesus on the cross? Was it the pimps and the prostitutes? Was it the adulterers and adulteresses? Who killed Jesus on the cross? Oh, it wasn't the pimps and the prostitutes. It was the Pharisees because Cain's always kill Abel. Cain's, at the very least in their hearts, they kill and divide A religious spirit separates you from God and his gift of grace. And a religious spirit separates you from other people and the opportunity for community and loving people not where they're at, but where God is taking them. Not based on their, on their present performance, but based on God's potential in saving them. Not based on your works or their works, but based on the work of God on the cross in Jesus Christ. The blood of Abel cries out from the ground that all we have done is murdered each other, separated each other, tried to be better than each other, been overly competitive, overly jealous, overly envious. And the blood of Abel tells us that we are all worthy of the everlasting separation from God into judgment. It's this religious spirit that killed God when he came. John chapter 1 says, And God became flesh, and he came into the world. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. His brothers killed him. His brothers spilled his blood because they were too self-righteous to say, Yep, you're the only one. You're the only way I can be made right with God. There's no other way. There's nothing in me that could save me. I need everything you got, Jesus. And that's what Jesus told them. Jesus told religious people, You will go to hell unless you believe in me. You will be cast. I don't care how many times you've been to church. I don't care how many times 
times you've been a deacon or a deaconess or, or an elder or, or a member of how many other churches, Baptist, Presbyterian. I don't care. I don't care what kind of robe your pastor wears. I don't care what kind of water he spread on you. You have nothing in yourself to make you right with God. The only thing that can make you right is the unconditional love, the grace of God experienced through Christ on the cross. Get rid of a religious spirit. Humble yourself. Don't be like Cain. Don't bring your credentials. Don't bring your pride. Bring your able heart. I am insignificant. I am but a breath. Be like the tax collector. Forgive me, God, a sinner. Be like the younger brother who comes to his senses and returns and says, forgive me, I'm not worthy of your home. Those are the ones who are accounted righteous. Go in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, by faith. Everybody say, by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than God, through which he was commended. He was commended. We could put in there, he was accounted as righteous. God commending, justifying. Him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel was killed. He was the first martyr in the history of humanity. He died for his faith, and he shows us that what makes us righteous with God is not our works, but faith. And faith is not a work. Faith is, faith is an empty hand that receives and says, I receive what you have given by grace. I receive your work. I receive your gift. When Abel went to church and offered that sacrifice, it was not to earn something. It was to thank God for what God does. It was by faith that he offered that sacrifice. And it was by faith that God said, you are justified. You are made right. You are considered righteous even above Cain and all his religious works. Hmm. You got to get rid of a religious spirit. And you've got to replace it with faith alone. You've got to replace it with a heart that says, whatever I have, it's because of you, God. If I have anything at all, it's because of you. If I have any righteousness, it's because it's the foreign righteousness that you've placed in me. If I have anything, it's been imputed to my account. If I have anything, it's because you have provided. If I have anything, it's because you have done the work. It's not about my work. It's not about my performance. It's not about my church or my tithing or my... It's not about any of that, God. I come to church not to, not to earn something, but to thank you for what you earned for me in my place. That will replace a religious spirit, and that will restore and ignite your worship for God because your worship trajectory, the worship trajectory of grace always goes up because a person goes, he, I'm accepted? Are you serious? Like, I get to go to church and be accepted? Insignificant me. 
Of course, my mom always did tell me I was good, and then the Holy Spirit goes, <laughs> And when Isaac leads the song, you lift your hands in worship. When the song is lifted up that God has loved you, you go, Awesome. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, last verse for the day. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, talks about a new blood that's been shed. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, the blood of Abel tells me that the Cain in me can't be made right with God. It, it tells me that all, I, all I've earned in my life is the wrath and the justice of God. I have not loved as I should. I've not been the human being as I should. I've taken the forbidden fruit. I've walked, I'm east of Eden. I'm far from God. See, the blood of Abel tells me that my reality in this world is paradise has been lost, and it speaks a message of justice. But then Jesus came and he died and his blood was shed and, and his blood was, was poured out on the ground in that mud and mingled together with that mud and with that blood came a word, a message. And you know what the message of, of Jesus' blood is? That I'm pardoned. The message of Jesus' blood is that I'm forgiven. The message of Jesus' blood is a better message than the, than the message of Abel because Abel just tells me that I'm wicked and sinful. But the message of Jesus tells me I'm loved by God. The message of, of, of the blood of Jesus tells me that God loves me. The message of the blood of Jesus is God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. The message of the blood of Jesus is Romans 5, 5. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The message of the blood of Jesus is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The message of the blood of Jesus is Paul praying, I pray that you might know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God, that it might fill your heart with the fullness and the enlightenment of God you see live by faith in the message of the blood of Jesus number one let me give you a couple things to go home on number one if you have faith in the blood of Jesus you can know that you're loved by God it's not love of God's not something for you to go earn it's not something for you to feel like oh I can't I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get God's love at least for another six months at least because if I think in six months I can do these five things, and then in six months I can feel like maybe I can earn God's love by Easter Sunday. Maybe if I did these ten things, then I'll be made right with God. No, 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 no. Listen, you're made right with God by the blood of Christ. It tells you you're loved by God. You don't have to do any more earning or working or performing or some kind of spiritual gymnastics or some type or some kind of... You know, you don't have to do anything. Did I just do that? <laughs> Obviously, you don't have to do that. <laughs> you want to know why people get so insecure with each other? You want to know, know the root of judgmentalism and being a Pharisee and have a religious spirit? It's when you feel insecure with God. <laughs> it really is. It's deep insecurity. 
Religious, moral, type A personalities are some of the most insecure people you will ever meet. And the reason why is because they're not quite sure. Did did I get the task done? Am I good? And then when somebody kind of annoys them, they're like, you're making me look bad. Stop being stupid. The love of God is so important that you know that Jesus earned it for you. That's why we worship him. And Paul said to the Galatians, I wish these people that come in these churches and make themselves so important and tell everybody they're not doing it right. He goes, I wish. Galatians 5. So I wish they would emasculate themselves and get out of the church. That's what he said. He said it, not me, Isaac, okay? Love and grace. By grace you are saved, not through works. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. This love of God humbles you. And when you look at your brother or your sister, even if they're younger, even if they're not quite where they should be, you can love them where they're going because you see where God is taking you. You see what God has done in your life. And you can embrace them even when they're weak, especially when they're weak. The blood of Jesus is powerful because it shapes our identity. It shapes us. God did the work. We come to church going, thank you, Jesus. We come to church not to earn something, but to thank God for what he's already earned for us. The love of God is preached through the blood of Jesus. Number two, the blood of Jesus preaches a better message than Abel's blood because it tells me I'm to love people like Jesus loved me. Hmm. I'm to forgive. I'm to love. I'm to tell you that your relationship with me is not based on your performance. I'm to tell you that you don't have to be perfect. That's why John said, love covers a multitude of sins. You want to know why? Because when you've been forgiven much, you're able to forgive much. And you're able to cover the minor things. You know, without the love of God, minor things become major issues. We take little mohos and we make big mountains out of it. We make it this big thing. But you see, when you've been forgiven, when you're like Abel and you're accepted and justified by God, you're able to accept anyone. This makes marriages good. You're, you're able to cover the faults of, of the one that, that is in your marriage. You're able to, 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 to cover up and not, not make a big deal out of the minor things. And on the major things, you're able to have a mature conversation and do conflict resolution with maturity because you don't have to have them. All you know is that God's given them to you to love, love, love. The blood of Jesus speaks a very practical message when it comes to relationships, when it comes to church. On the one hand, the blood of Jesus can bring revival to our church. It can bring revival, Holy Spirit revival into your heart, into your community, into your neighborhood. It can ignite this worship of God that we were created for. But on the other hand, it can create unity and love and walking together and covering each other's faults and saying, I'm not going to let a little thing divide you from me. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to endure all things for you. I'm going to hope all things for you. I'm going to love and believe all things for you. I know what God can do. Faith in the blood of Jesus gets rid of the spirit of religion in our heart. That wasn't even half of the sermon I prepared today. Can I get an amen? Amen. I had meat indeed today. 
I was ready to go all the way through chapter 4 and 5, brothers and sisters. But because I forgive you for wanting shorter sermons, I will quit. (laughs) And I must say to you that we will talk next week not about the spirit of religion, but the spirit of the world. And it's very interesting. Cain leaves the church. God gives him a long life because of grace. And Cain decides on an experiment to try to create a world without the presence of God. Cain ultimately says, you know what? That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. I'm a Taipei person. I got some skills. We're going to build us a city. And in this city, we're not going to include God. We're going to build better realities without the presence of God. Let's see if we can make that work. And so we'll talk about getting rid of the spirit of the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book and all of us. This pastor included has had a spirit of Cain. Uh, We... We have had moments of deep prejudice, racism, discrimination. We have overly envied the rich and we have overly judged the poor. We have been self-righteous. We have imagined at weak moments of our life that we could actually earn your holiness, that we could somehow live up to your eternal, transcendent, perfectly holy nature in our own works. God, humble us, because we know that when we're weak, you become strong. We know that when we bow down, you exalt us. We know that as we humble ourselves like Abel did at church, as as we receive what you offer us by faith, that, that you will lift us up, that you will revive our hearts, that you will bring revival even to our time, maybe an awakening not only to ourselves, but our church community, our homes, to our children, that this flow of your grace and your light and your brightness and your goodness would would just run through us into our homes and our community and our society. God, humble us so that this might happen. Help us to receive. Help us, God, to live by faith in the blood of Jesus, which speaks to us this message that we are loved and that we are to love. Help us, Holy Spirit, to grow in our ability to love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And therefore, help us to look to the blood to make that happen.